Hello and welcome along to the Probably Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Knight. Nickel. And tell show we're talking about five different ways to measure property investment returns. Now, yesterday we talked about why you'd use the lowest deposit possible when investing in property, but that is only the right decision if you're interested in capital appreciation and thinking about the return on the deposit or the equity that you put in. But that leads to a good discussion about, well, what's the right measure of an investment property and how to figure out if it's got high returns or not? Now, we've done episodes like this before, but I just want to cover it again because it is so fundamental and we'll probably say things in different ways that maybe will click for some of you. So let's start with yield-based measures. And the most basic one that pretty much everyone knows is gross yield. Now, what actually does the gross yield measure? It simply calculates the amount of revenue your property gets compared to the purchase price. So the amount of money that comes into your account based on how expensive your property is. So let's say you've got $500,000 property, it's renting out for 500 bucks a week. You get 26 grand a year in rent as a percentage of the 500k purchase price, 5.2% gross yield. Really simple. But it's important to ask yourself what does this not measure? So we're measuring the revenue or the rent your property gets compared to the purchase price. It doesn't measure the amount of costs you have, it doesn't measure how fast your property is going up in value or whether you're paying back debt or not doesn't even measure your cash flow. It just measures the amount of rent that you get compared to the purchase price. And I think even though this is the most common of measures that gets thrown around, it's probably the bluntest of instruments of all the things we're going to talk about. That leads to a great question of, well, when a gross yield's good? And I think gross yields are great when you are making the first sense check, when you are making a quick comparison between properties, just to get a sense of, Look, I expect a gross yield of about 4.5% or 4.8%. Find me some properties that do that. And then you can dig more into some of those other things around the costs, around how quickly it's going to increase the value, whether it's in the right area. As a first sense check, a gross yield can be really good, but it does have some shortcomings. Like if you're flipping properties, you are not going to use a gross yield. It would be the total (laughs) wrong measure to use because you're not going to rent that property out. You're buying something, you're doing it up, and then you're selling it. So not every property investor actually cares about gross yields, and this is not going to be the right tool in every single situation. Same with developers. A lot of the time, they're not going to think about gross yields. Some of them do. So when we had George Clifford on the show, that was one of his key things that he said that he wants to set out. He wants to figure out a good gross yield for the end investor. But for the most developers, again, like flippers, they're looking at how to get the best return on their investment. And the thing about gross yield is it tells you something about the property, not how you've set it up as an investment. So it ignores your costs, it ignores your mortgage structure, it ignores whether you've got a cash deposit or not. That brings us to the net yield, Andrew, which is also a yield-based measure. So this measures the revenue minus your basic costs compared to the purchase price. So it's a little more sophisticated than the gross yield because it factors in those basic costs. So the way it's calculated is this. So you've got a 500k property, renting for $500 a week, that's a gross yield of 5.2%. Yes, copy what I said before. (laughs) But let's say that there are 10K worth of operational costs. So we're not factoring in the mortgage, we're just factoring in those operational costs. We subtract that from the $500 a week that's coming in, and then the net yield now is 3.2%. And again, just remember, you don't include your mortgage in this calculation. Yeah, now we're thinking about Rates, insurance, maintenance, property management, accounting, all of those kinds of things. Now, what does the net yield still not measure? So it doesn't measure your cash flow yet because, again, you've potentially got a mortgage on that property. 
it doesn't factor in capital appreciation and it doesn't factor in debt repayments. So when is it good? Well, it's a slightly more sophisticated calculation than a gross yield because, of course, if you've got high body corporate fees in a property or like we spoke about leasehold properties the other day, you factor those in as an operational cost. If you've got something like that that's going to drag down that net yield from a high gross yield, or similarly, if you're buying a property with a really high gross yield in like a remote area, but the rates are disproportionately expensive, now all of a sudden your net yield's really affected. Okay, the next one that you'll often hear, and this tends to come out, I see this by a lot of American property yeah. investment influencers, they often talk about the cash on cash return. Now, this measures the cash flow you get from a property versus the cash flow that you put into it. Now, the good news about this is we are now finally measuring cash flow. Now, how's this calculated? Well, let's say that you've got a $500,000 property and you put down, again, let's call it a 20% deposit. So you put down a $100,000 deposit and let's say interest rates are really low. Good old days. You might find that you put in a 100K deposit, but you're getting out $5,000 of cash flow from that property every single year. So that would be a 5% cash on cash return because you're getting $5,000 worth of cash flow and you put in $100,000 of cash into that property. Now, the reason I say this is more popular in the States is because it just is. Um, you, don't see that in, you don't see this in New Zealand quite as much because a lot of us aren't putting a lot of cash into properties. We are borrowing money to put it into a property. And the other thing you often see over here in New Zealand is because we've got high interest rates, a lot of properties aren't making a positive cash flow return. You're having to top it up at least for the first couple of years of owning that property. So because of that, you're not getting a positive cash on cash return. It's just not as popular over here in New Zealand. Some people might do it if you're renovating a property, but it isn't quite as common. But what does this, again, not measure? It's not measuring your capital appreciation or your debt repayments. It's just measuring cash flow. Now, the thing I like about this one, though, is that it finally measures your cash flow. You're looking at it. You're comparing it to your deposit. So we are starting to get more sophisticated, even though it has some shortcomings. Now, Andrew, you're getting to my favorite one The now. holy grail. Well, in my mind, the holy grail. <laughs> but the return on investment. So what does this actually measure? So it measures all of the returns you get. It factors in your capital growth you're going to get on the property. It factors in the cash flow, both negative and positive. It factors in your debt repayments. And it factors in any instant equity. And it compares this to the money that you had to put in, both from a deposit standpoint and a cash flow standpoint for those negative years. Now, the trouble with return on investment, though, is it is a little bit harder to calculate. It takes some pretty hefty number crunching, but just give us an example of how it'd be calculated if you were just looking at a single year. So let's say the first year you put in 100K deposit and you put in 10K worth of cash flow, but your return was 25K worth of capital growth. For every dollar you put in, you're getting 23 cents back. Yep, because you had 25K with the returns, 110K of investment there. Really easy to measure in a single year. As you get more sophisticated looking at 10 years or 15 years, that's where the number crunching becomes a little bit harder. Now, what does this not measure though? Because return on investment, although I prefer it, it doesn't measure everything. So it doesn't measure risk. And that's because capital growth returns are not certain from every year to year. Like we can look at what it might be on an average over a 15 year period, but we're probably not going to be able to guarantee that you're going to get that 6% return this year. 
So from a year-to-year basis, there is going to be some volatility there. Everything else is pretty certain. Well, when you say everything else is pretty certain, we mean some of these other things like gross yield or net yield. That is really easy and relatively certain to forecast because you know what the rent's going to be when you rent it out and you know what you can purchase it for. Say with net yield, it's pretty certain. You know what your costs are going to be up front. So gross yield doesn't pretend to know what's going to happen in 15 years. Neither does net yield. Neither does cash on cash. That tells you what is happening this year. Return on investment starts to look at, well, what's happening over the next 15 years? So it's really good for long-term holds and when you are comparing properties. But it does have some more uncertainty there because you can't guarantee how quickly your house is going to go up in value over time. Now, what are some of the other shortcomings of return on investment? So it's easy to fudge the numbers because you have to make a lot of assumptions. So we can trick ourselves into thinking something's a better return on investment than it actually is. The spreadsheet is just going to calculate the numbers and the output depends on the input. So you've just got to be a little bit careful that you're honest with yourself when you are putting in the $500 a year maintenance and it's not going to be $2,000 a year because it's an old property. Yeah, because when you are factoring in all of those costs, you've got to even think about like where are interest rates going to go in the future. If you want something to look like it's going to have a high return on investment, very simple. Just use an unrealistically low interest rate. You know, put in 0% as your interest rate. You know, it'll look like a really good return. That's not going to happen. So you need to use really robust and realistic assumptions. The other shortcoming is you do need a spreadsheet to do it. You know, it takes some number crunching. That's why we built one and put it out into the world so you can actually use it yourself and get a sense of it. And if you want to download that, just go to opusparts.co.nz slash ROI. The last one and the fifth type of return I want to talk about is called internal rate of return. And some of you guys are absolute nerds and love your spreadsheets. This is the sort of return you'll use because what this does is it gives you an annual return of what your property does. So even though cash flow changes each year, even though capital growth is going to change every year, you know, sometimes your house might go up by 5%, sometimes it goes up by 10, sometimes it goes down by 5%, whatever it happens to be. This gives you a single annualized return. So I don't tend to put this in my spreadsheets, but I read the numbers over 15 years for a $550,000 property renting out for 500 bucks a week. And even with all of my usual assumptions, it gave me an internal rate of return of 11.2%, right? So if I put my money into this property, you know, if you adjust everything for inflation, about 11.2% is what you'd expect this property to return you. Now, the good thing about that is it becomes really easy to compare with shares and other investments. So if you say, okay, I'm going to borrow money to put into an investment property, cool, 11.2% return. Well, that's really good compared to if I was investing in a term deposit and getting, say, 6% a year at at the moment. And I know that over time, term deposit rates are likely to come down. Oh, well, that sounds really good compared to maybe 9% that I might get if I invest in a diversified share portfolio. So it gives you the ability to compare a property compared to you know, something else you might invest in like shares or term deposits. And the other good thing about this is it's very similar to return on investment. It measures cash flow, it measures debt repayments, it measures all of the different types of returns and it asks if I sell that property in 15 years time, you know, what was that rate of return? Now, the only shortcoming with this is it's really hard to calculate. Again, you need a spreadsheet. You've got to be able to forecast what all of your different cash flows are going to be. You've got to forecast when you put that money in. If you're investing in a new build property, you put half your deposit in in year one. You might put half your deposit in year two. You've got to adjust it all for inflation. It becomes quite complicated. That's why I'm generally not the biggest fan of it, and I prefer return on investment. But 
The other thing that's important to remember is every single one of these ways to measure investment property returns are appropriate based on whatever your strategy happens to be and which part of the property investment process you're up to. So Andrew, even though we talked about how gross yields are, don't, don't look at those, you use gross yields. Yeah, I use it as a quick sense sheet, but that's all. Yeah, that's the point. So gross yield is totally appropriate if you are doing a quick sense check before you dive into some more detail. Same with net yields can be very appropriate. Now, cash on cash return as interest rates come down, if you are investing in positive cash flow properties, again, that could be a really appropriate way of seeing whether you want to invest in a particular property if you are investing for cash flow. But that wouldn't be the right measure if you are more interested in capital growth, that's where you're going to use return on investment or internal rate of return. And it always makes me think of that Einstein quote that said, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. So it's about, you've got to think, well, what am I trying to get out of investment property? And then using the appropriate measurement for it. Like we are not going to measure a thousand meters in degrees Celsius. It's the wrong way to measure distance. You measure it in meters. So that's just the way, what I'm trying to get you to think about. And one of the big disservices we do ourselves in property investment is when we just say, oh, well, this is a high return property and that's a low return property. Yeah, it might be, but by what measure? And is that the most appropriate metric to use when thinking about what your returns are in investment property? Really nerdy, but very important discussion to have. Right, let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you're thinking about investing in property in 2024, you're probably needing to find out if you can actually afford to purchase one. And I've just released a new calculator that has all of the latest bank policies in there, so you can get a, just a sense, a ballpark, of whether you might be able to afford something this year. If you want to test it out, it's completely free. Go to opuspartners.co.nz slash 2024. That's slash 2024. Give it a go. It'll take you 60 seconds. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Tim McKnight. We're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics, and insights to help you get the most of the new property market. Until next time.